We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, we've coordinated with SONA, the Student Organised Network for Architecture, who've put this episode together. I'll now pass over to SONA Vice President Nicole Mesquita-Mendez, who interviewed today's guest, Kiefer Dunn. Learning architecture occurs in a number of ways, from university and work experience, to travel, reading and sketching. I'm Nicole Mesquita-Mendez, a Vice President at SONA. And in this episode, we'll be talking with Kiefer Dunn about the value of architectural education and the importance of students playing an active role in positively affecting their learning and the quality of their education. Kiefer Dunn is an organizer and licensed architect based in Chicago. He is a sole practitioner and an active member of the architecture lobby, an assistant professor adjunct at the School of the Institute of Art Institute in Chicago, and a host of the radio show Buildings on Air, which discusses architecture and politics. Hi, Kiefer. Thanks for being part of the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. It's great to hear. Um, so we know that you've been teaching architecture for a while now. Why are you so passionate about architectural education? <laughs> That's a good question. I, um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very sort of critical of the current way that the profession is structured uh, and sort of operated. And I think that those are linked to issues that go well beyond the profession, things like capitalism, et cetera. But I find teaching to be just sort of deeply rewarding um, as, a, as a kind of space where we can have, have a relative autonomy to kind of pull that apart and work through that together with people who are hoping to become architects, right? I, I mean, I think we all get into this profession because we want to see something positive put into the world. We understand the power of the built environment and we want beauty for our friends and coworkers and families and, and neighbors and communities. And I think that architectural education is a really great space to kind of put that into focus while also kind of understanding and readying ourselves to operate in a space where we don't always get to, to do that. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, I suppose. I don't know if that, that makes sense. but No, of course. Would you be able to provide an example of a time where you've seen architectural education have such an impact? Yeah, so a good example, you know, not to toot my own horn, as they say here in the Midwest, <laughs> um, but uh, when I teach architectural studio undergraduate in, at SAIC, the program that we usually use is uh, a union hall for architects, right? So a union hall is a fantastic program for like an undergraduate studio because it's basically like a giant room with some offices, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, you really kind of have to focus on fundamental architectural concepts and really making it a beautiful space but you kind of miss some of the, you know, moving program blocks around and, and, and this sort of thing. But the fact that the program is a union hall for architects ends up giving us a kind of space to have lots of conversations about the state of labor in architecture, right? And how we as architects deal with that, how we could deal with it. We don't have a union of architects in the United States. And so it kind of opens up that imaginary as well. You know, there's other examples too. I teach a lot of technical courses 
And so, you know, I think in a lot of technical courses, you end up talking a lot about building science and things like this. But of course, there's a deeply political dimension to material flows, to building codes, to how contracts are structured and how that impacts the process of making and how we collaborate with builders. And, you know, I I sort of also try to take opportunities in those technical courses to bring some of those social issues, which absolutely intersect with the technical into the fold. So those are those are a couple ways I go about it. You know, I'm also part of the architecture lobby, which is an activist organization of of architects, architectural educators and kind of more. Um, But this is kind of an ongoing conversation for us as well is, you know, how, how do we change the profession and obviously thinking through education is an important part of that. Of course, of course. Could you tell us a bit about how the architecture lobby engages with education? Yeah, sure. So right now that happens in a pretty, in a relatively informal way, I would say. So, you know, a lot of our members are educators. Some of them, you know, have been, have been around for, for a long time. Uh, some of them are in the kind of upper echelons of things. A lot more are, are sort of adjuncts or part-timers or, or sort of precarious faculty. And now there's a kind of informal, just, just by virtue of being organized together, uh, which is so important, we're able to kind of have conversations about how the syllabi are being constructed to like share interesting articles, share stories. Now, one of the exciting things though, is that that's on the way to being formalized. So there's a, a academic workers caucus that's forming in the lobby of, of people who are educators. And, you know, we have a lot of students in the lobby too. So, so they're a part of that certainly as well, but, you know, they're going to be also kind of thinking through some of these issues, right? Like from a worker's standpoint, from a student's standpoint, what is an ideal architecture education? So that's that's a project that's kind of really in its infancy, but has been a long time coming. So I'm really excited to see what comes of it. Yeah, it's so interesting to see sort of the synergy between architectural education and then practice and then how they feed in on each other. Yeah. So in terms of like COVID-19, obviously it's shaken life up for everyone. And in Australia, with the transition to online learning, there have been a lot of students who've kind of perceived a lack of value in their education and may have decided to postpone their architectural studies to 2021. Would you say this is the same in America? Oh, yeah, um, ab- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I'm, I'm sort of deeply empathetic to, to the struggle because, you know, there's, there's sort of no substitute for being in person together and education. But at the same time, obviously, like everyone's health and safety is the most important thing, right? Um, and so knowing how to balance those things is, is, is really, really tough. I guess, like, of course, with all these changes happening, do you think there's anything students can do to positively affect the value or the delivery of their education during these times? Yeah, I mean, I think that the best thing that students can do is is sort of or- organize, right? Um, you know, I think that one of the really complicated things about the pandemic, but really just architectural education in general, is that a lot of us are sort of very um, stuck, maybe is the best way to put it, like stuck between, you know, administrators wanting to, um, you know, make sure that students are paying tuition, faculty who are concerned for their own safety and that of the students, students who obviously want to get the most out of their education. And I think that 
for me, it's like just really important to like contextualize that, right? Like, because I, I think like the reason why all of this is so hard, like the reason why we're all kind of like stuck in this Gordian knot, I think has to do with the precarity that comes from being a worker in capitalism, but especially neoliberal capitalism, because there's a kind of certain urgency to getting an education, right? Like the tuition is not free, yeah. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and, and especially as a young person, like you need to start making money, right? Like, and I, I think a lot of times we take those conditions as granted when they, the, the world could be set up in an infinite number of ways that, that aren't that one, right? And um, it's, which is not to say that we can just, you know, sort of flip a switch and, and have it be different you know, that requires really long-term organizing, like something like what I'm talking about, like having a different way of organizing society, like is an organizing project, uh, a multi-generational organizing project. So, uh, you know, what do you do now? You you start down that path, right? Like you engage with with people who are doing that work, but, you know, I, I can understand how that doesn't solve the kind of immediate problem. And I think in, in if we're thinking about it in that, that short-term way, I think the best thing that students can do is really organize. And, and now with Zoom and all of these things, in some ways it's a constraint to organizing, but in a lot of ways it can kind of be helpful like in a lot, and helping bring people together. Getting as many people together as you can to come up with demands, to try to understand each other, to try to understand what collective values are important to you as a body of people and how you're going to advocate for those things, whether it's in the context of an administration, whether it's in the context of you should be erasing student debt, like there should be no student debt, like, you know, uh, especially during a time of crisis, like whatever it is, all, all of those things, all those things, are, I think, are, are possible. And we've, we've seen it in, in the architecture lobby. Um, you know, I think more people than ever, uh, and students especially, are organizing amongst themselves, both for their own safety, but also for, frankly, their financial interests, right, which is, is, which is important and are, you know, having some, some successes in that. So I, 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 that, that would be my, my sort of take on that question, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. That really kind of highlights the importance of students kind of banding together to achieve positive change. Have you seen this sort of student engagement take place at a university you work here? Yeah, so I, I have, SAIC is a little bit of an, of an odd example, but uh, like certainly the University of Michigan chapter of the architecture lobby is extremely well organized and you know they they're very they're very good at doing this type of organizing and one of one of the exciting things about the way that they're structured is you know they have both sort of faculty members and students organized together under the umbrella of the architecture lobby which kind of doubles the power in a, in a lot of ways. But it means that they're able to kind of have conversations, you know, with the administration and then kind of come with a posse, <laughs> as, as it were. <laughs> I'm not sure, like, what, what specifically they're kind of organizing or agitating around at the moment, but I know that they are doing stuff. And I've, I've heard about other organizing efforts at schools kind of all, all over the country, really. I don't want to say specifically the schools or specifically what they're doing for sort of fear of, you know, I don't, I don't know, um, affecting their bargaining position, um, you know, but, but, but it is things like advocating for tuition refunds, making sure that students who are 
you know, maybe don't have a home to go to or, or, or have difficulties getting home or, you know, have a, have a, have a kind of situation uh, that they would like to avoid, ha- have access to student housing, even if student housing is being sort of limited or shut down by the pandemic. The, the other sort of thing that's happening I mean, globally, but especially in, in, in the U.S., is a, is a reckoning around racial justice. So a lot of those organizing efforts kind of come together, right? So in, in a lot of ways, thinking about how we make, it's my workplace as an educator and, and, and your learning environment as a student, but, but how, we, how we make that a kind of welcoming space for everyone and, and sort of take like meaningful anti-racist action beyond sort of general diversity statements, right? Or, 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 or maybe put another way, how we hold universities accountable to the statements that they do make, right? So that for a lot of people is an issue of security, right? Like bo- both bodily security, financial security, uh, mental health security. And so the, there's, there's a lot of overlaps with kind of organizing approaches around the pandemic. So I, I, I don't know if that's specific enough, but um, you know, sort of what comes to mind. That's so interesting to hear. Um, it's so empowering to hear as well. Um, I guess, do you have suggestions for students into how to kind of organize themselves to achieve the most impact to positively affect their education? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think the most important thing is to come together and come up with a list of what you want and then do what we call a power mapping exercise, which is basically kind of understanding what power you do have as a group of people, right? And, and what power you're kind of com- going to come up against, right? And sort of fi- finding out how you navigate those things in, 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 in the context of a strategy, right? So as students, you have power because you pay the university's bills uh, with your tuition, um, at least in some part, <laughs> right? So that, that's a kind of power as workers, as, as, as you know, architectural educators and workers. And we have the power to withhold our labor. We also have the power to, whether it's like a faculty senate or a committee or, or, or what have you, to be advocates on those bodies. You know, I think really, really, it's hard to generalize about it because the situations are really usually pretty unique. But the important thing is is just getting together some trusted people and, and being methodical about it and trying to grow your numbers as, as much as you can and sort of meet people where they're at and understand where their kind of interests lie and understand how that relates to the larger movement that you're building and, and, and try to kind of bring those things together in, in your organizing conversations. You know, I think this is something that the architecture lobby does. We do organizer trainings from, from time to time, which is really useful. It's helpful to do a training, but a, a lot of it is, is, is sort of intuitive. Get together, be methodical, you know, keep lists of, of people who, you know, who might be interested in uh, what you're doing, follow up with them, you know, make asks of people, sort of trust that people want to help and, and want to better their situation. So don't be shy about, about asking. And then be cautious. Uh, you, have, you have safety in numbers. You don't want to be sort of cavalier. But also pick your moments to be bold and be bold in making demands. You know, I think um, you'd be surprised what you can get away with, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, like, of course, every situation differs um, depending on the needs of the students. But I think a lot of the time students don't actually realize the power that they have in affecting this sort of positive change 
to improve their education. So thank you for providing those recommendations on like how to start and build that momentum. So from my perspective, learning architecture kind of takes place in two parts. So at university and then learning from practice in a work environment. Did you work while you were a student? No. So um, I was a student sort of in the midst of the first Great Recession, I guess. Um, so uh, it, was, it was very difficult to find uh, internships, especially paid internships in that sort of period from 2008 to 2012. And I usually worked one, sometimes two jobs over the summer to put some money in my pocket. So it was sort of hard for me to do study abroad trips or take an unpaid internship. So I, I worked while I was in school, but I, I didn't work in architecture while I was in school. And then when I was in grad school, you know, I think I, I probably had, it, the recession was mostly over by then, but I, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but I, I, I was in a bike rack and I got an insurance settlement check, which meant that I could really focus on my education in grad school and not have to work, which was kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I don't recommend cashing checks with your body, but that's just kind of how it panned out. And also, that's also the story of how I became a sole practitioner, too. I mean, I, when I graduated from grad school, I worked in corporate architecture for two or three years. And then I got in another bike rack. I, I promise I'm good at riding bikes. Like, uh, neither of these were my fault. But I, I, I also uh, got a settlement then. And that's kind of what enabled, gave me the flexibility to start my own practice. Because otherwise, it, it simply wouldn't have been possible. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important to be honest about stuff like that. Um, because I think, you know, there's a kind of like bootstraps myth that's just prevalent in a lot of societies, but, but also especially in, in kind of architecture culture. And I think a lot of people who have small practices have sort of some way in which they're affording it, <laughs> right? And it's good to know why, right? And that if you're not in that position, it's not because you're a bad architect, right? Um, so I, I think I think that's useful stuff to know. I did I did have a year between undergraduate and grad school where I, I worked part time at an art supply store and part time at a, a small practice, um, which was nice and and a good learning experience. But I, I never had that perfect internship, right? <laughs> and it mostly, it mostly turned out fine, maybe because of the bike racks. Um. <laughs> um, I guess, well, what your experience was when you graduated from your undergraduate, it's very similar to what a lot of students are experiencing now in our current economic climate. Um, well, apart from getting into bike accidents, sure. um, do you have any suggestions on how students or recent graduates could go about kind of cultivating the knowledge that they would otherwise get from learning and practice or other knowledge which would be beneficial in their growth and advancement? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to think about, I think it's important to recognize that there's a difference between what you do for money and like what your like life's work is, right? And I think a lot of times we're sort of, led to believe that the only way you're sort of valid as a person is if those two things line up for you, right? Like if, if what you do for fulfillment is the same thing that you do for money. And I think that in the current political and economic climate, even beyond the pandemic, even before the pandemic, it's just like a really, it's a really hard thing 
to find that kind of confluence unless you are coming from a kind of position of immense privilege. And so I think that now, um, in some ways, a lot of us don't, don't even have the kind of choice or, or even the kind of like, you know, mirage of an oasis in the distance where those two things can be combined. Um, and I think in, in that kind of context, being just mindful that whatever I do for money right now, like I can, I can use this also as a time to really cultivate my own sort of self-interest, your own sort of self-interests and, and your sort of life's work and, and find what's important to you in architecture or beyond, right? Like in, in many ways, my sort of life's work isn't architecture, it's sort of organizing and, 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 and education. And the architecture is kind of what I do for, for money. Um, and at its best, it's a kind of creative fulfillment that puts me in touch with the better parts of my, myself. But, but, like, but, but ultimately, you know, those, those things are kind of separate. No one pays me to organize, right? So I, I, think, I think it's a good moment to kind of like just put those things into focus for yourself. And I think in, in these moments of crisis, you know, that, that sense of urgency can be really intense right and 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 i've and i've sort of been there myself but i think sort of relieving yourself of the pressure to kind of find a job that will do everything it's liberating in a way right so yeah like whatever that is you know like maybe it's taking a job as a builder right um as counterintuitive as it is there's a big housing shortage in the u.s right now and there's there's still lots of construction going on so you know maybe maybe it's that maybe it maybe it is taking a corporate job for a while and understanding that that's not your path to fulfillment in life, uh, but that there's a lot of things to learn from. And maybe it's a good environment to do some organizing in, right? Like, you know, it, it really, it really depends on, on you as a person. But I, I think centering that kind of humanism is really critical. And I think it also goes back, I mean, this question of value has come up like a, a number of times. And I, I think that humanism can be a value of architectural education. I, and I think maybe it's more correct to say, like, what are the different values that architectural education is providing and ask ourselves to whom, right? So in, in some sense, the, architectural va- the value of an architectural education for an employer is having a skilled employee, right? And, and where, where the employer didn't have to pay for the skilling because you paid for it yourself out of your tuition dollars, right? <laughs> like um, in, in, in the value of an architectural education for a university is you're a butt in a seat who pays, who pays tuition and keeps the whole kind of edifice turning over. The value of an architectural education for you as a student could be getting the skills to get a job, but it also could be understanding, you know, some of those like humanistic dimensions to work and in, in a path towards creative fulfillment. And so the confusing thing is that, you know, you can't separate out those values from it, from each other in a very clean way, right? Like they're all kind of happening in the same time because there's there's still at the end of the day only one architectural education. But I but I think understanding that as a kind of field of competing forces really helps contextualize a lot of the tensions in architecture school. I, I know like a lot of my students, they really want like to know like the kind of like hard skills that will help make them marketable on a job application. 
And I absolutely understand why, because there's this economic pressure. But again, like going back to what I said earlier, like the world doesn't necessarily need to be structured in that way, right? And like, and I think understanding that there is a possible vision of an architectural education that does emphasize sort of fulfillment on a societal level and on an individual level, sort of to the detriment of maybe some of the other modes of value is, is useful, right? That's, I think, a, a, a useful kind of exercise in visioning to go through. <laughs> That's actually a really interesting notion about a society based on fulfillment of the individual and the collective. Um, out of curiosity, how would you see this being structured or work if you've given that some thought? Yeah, well, one of, one of the things that I talk about with my students is the sort of difference between thinking about creative work as a process of like self-expression or self-validation and thinking about it more as a process of self-development. And the reason why I think that's important is because like self-expression, I think generally, and I'm, I'm speaking generally, so um, you know, don't don't get too mad at me if I say something weird or wrong. But, but um, you know, I think like that thinking about architecture or, or creative work in general as a kind of modes of self-expression is a, is a highly individualistic sort of enterprise, right? And it also kind of presumes that there's some sort of like innate genius that like you know is waiting to be released onto the world, and I think that that dovetails really nicely with a lot of the very negative patterns or behaviors that we see in, in the architectural industry, the sort of cult of the individual genius. So I think for me, that's wildly undesirable to, to kind of think in those terms. And the reason why I think something like self-development is not that is, is because it's still about sort of you and, and your work and growing as, as a person, but self-development doesn't happen in a vacuum. Self-development happens in a kind of relationship to the world and to outside forces and, and, and to your friends and to your colleagues and, and comrades. And, you know, there's, there's a kind of social dimension to it and, and all of the ways that social means. And so I think that architectural education at its best is a really great opportunity for that kind of self-development. Thinking about you and, and your wants and, and kind of having a space to reflect on those things and, and sort of work with faculty and, and your peers to kind of further that, but also think about how that fits into the larger picture of everything else. <laughs> and so that for me is a kind of helpful heuristic when I'm in the classroom to kind of think about how all those pieces fit together. How do you think that architectural education fits into that wider picture? <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's tough because I think it's, it's tough to say because like, it is really contested in, in, in the ways that I was kind of talking about, right? Like there's, there's this kind of constant pressure to make yourself employable, which I think comes to the detriment of meaningful self-development. And I think this, this varies from school to school, but it's also a question of what work means and what fulfillment means under capitalism, right? So like, um, David Graeber has a book called Bullshit Jobs. That's great. But, but he sort of talks about the really damaging psychological effects of the kind of uh, contemporary capitalist ideology, which basically links your self-worth to your ability to be productive as an employee. And, you know, I think 
that's a really frustrating, frustrating thing. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why architecture school and architecture as a, as a discipline is really fraught with a lot of mental health issues um, because, because we sort of feel this conflict innately within ourselves, right? Like, you know, the kind of mindless work for developers and, you know, the kind of linking of our self-worth to our jobs but also understanding uh, by virtue of being, being sort of architects that it could all be much better and the, the kind of things that we do could be put to much better ends than the bottom line of, of, a, of a developer or, or, or a, you know, a luxury client or whoever. So thinking about that in the context of architectural education, I mean, gosh, it's just like, on some level, it's it's tough because it's a question that really is operating at the scale of capital and not so much at the scale of architectural education, right? And and so I think one of one of the things that we can do as as educators and as students is really sort of like use the the, the relative leeway and insulation of our education to reflect on that and think about how we organize around it and intercede in it. So, um, you know, universities as institutions are like not immune from, from capitalism, but nevertheless, there is a kind of certain flexibility that we have within those four years to kind of reflect and be critical of that system in a way that's maybe a little bit more difficult to do once you are, you know, sort of working a nine to five. So I think that that's a kind of space where architectural education fills a pretty valuable role. And I think as students and, and, and teachers, it's really incumbent on us to defend that, right? Defend that, that space of being critical, right? Like defend having history and theory classes, good ones, right? Not, not, not sort of navel gazing ones, but like, you know, ones that help us understand the world. You know, I think that right now there's a big pressure to kind of do away with a lot of those courses to like focus on Revit and rendering and, and whatever else, when I actually think that those things are easy to learn and <laughs> in some ways, and like, will not that they're easy. Okay. It's, I, you know, I, I have a hard time rendering still, but like, you know, they're, they're sort of hard skills that are easier to develop in a kind of vacuum, I'll say, whereas the space of the university, having those kinds of critical conversations with faculty and colleagues, like you just, you can't, you can't reproduce that in, in anywhere else. And I, I also think there also has to be a, attached to that a question of access to that education. So I, I, I think that that's like have, having that space is really critical. But we also need to be mindful of the fact that college is expensive. And also um, we're operating in societies that have their fair share of institutional racism, homophobia, transphobia, you know, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so I think, I think um, protecting that as a, as a space, but also making sure that it's a genuinely equitable space are the two, the two kind of tasks on the table for architectural education. Wow. Um, that was very deep and insightful. Um, just following on from what you, the last statement that you made about the sort of systemic issues that architectural, like any institution faces, how do you think architectural education could play a role in addressing those issues? Yeah, it's tough because on some level, I feel like the best thing that architecture teachers can do is underscore the fact that building is not always the solution. 
uh, right? So, um, which I, I think tends to be the default mode for most architects, right? Like, uh, but a building is not going to solve institutional racism. It's highly unlikely that it'll even put a dent in it, right? Like, and so I think that this is an area where I think having professional practice courses is really critical, like, and, and, and sort of advocating for uh, maybe smarter uh, curriculum around professional practice is, is really critical because a, a lot of the issues around sort of discrimination in, in the industry, they're not designed, I mean, they're just not design problems. They're problems of how offices are structured, right? They're, they're, pro- they're problems of professional mores. They're problems of codes of ethics and, and their failure. And I think certainly when I was in school, which was not that long ago, but when I was in school, the, the kind of dominant mode of professional practice education was, oh, like, we're going to learn about contracts. We're going to learn what, you know, the professional society is. We're going to learn about project delivery methods. And all of those things are really important, but it would be really nice to see professional practice courses that sort of talked about how office policies and and handbooks and, you know, the presence of unions or, you know, all how all of these different things sort of relate to the equity question. Right. Um, And I think I think there's a lot of room to get a lot deeper and a lot more critical in those sorts of spaces. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that's really important to understand. I would just like to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us um, and providing your insights into architectural education and also providing sort of a starting point for a lot of students to kind of become more active and engaged in affecting positive change within their education. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, people people can find me on the internet and um, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to talk more <laughs> uh, with folks um, always. Um, but I, I, re- I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Kiefer Dunn. This episode was coordinated by SONA and Imagine through the Australian Institute of Architects. The SONA reps who coordinated this episode were Nicole Mesquita-Mendez and Jacques Chevron-Breton. If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects from around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.